Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I am your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the world's most comprehensive refund protection product. To find out how you and your organization can partner with Booking Protect to deliver a world-class customer service experience, more customization in your customer's purchasing path, and maybe most importantly, how you and your organization can create a brand new stream of revenue, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that's www.bookingprotect.com. Have I mentioned yet that I'm going to go to Australia, right? Me and my buddy, Simon Mab, CEO of Booking Protect, will be in Australia for the Ticketing Professionals Conference of Australia in Sydney on November 14th and 15th um, at the Bank West Stadium. Let me make sure I have that right. Bank West Stadium. In Sydney, it looks like a gorgeous venue. Uh, I will be giving the opening keynote. I'm going to be talking about change, which is uh, one of my favorite topics because change is always happening, always ongoing, and you can either get run over by it or you can manage it and use it to your advantage. I'm going to talk to everybody about how to use it to their advantage. Um, so there are the tickets are available now. So visit their website. It's www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. Once again, that's www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. You'll be able to see me give a keynote. Uh, Simon's going to be talking about customer service, um, customer service using uh, digital tools and technology. Uh, We're going to do a couple of events, uh, maybe a happy hour in Sydney. It's going to be a really, really great event. Angela Higgins and Joe Michelle are doing a great job of putting this conference together. Um, And I'm going to do this. If you buy your tickets and say you heard about it on the Business of Fun, send me your receipt. And I'll put together some sort of special treat for the people who buy because they heard about it on the Business of Fun. All right. So do that. Go to ticketingprofessionals.com. Dot au, order your tickets, send them to me at my email address, dave at davewakeman.com. Put, you know, Australia, Sydney, whatever you want to put in there, uh, receipt, anything, and I will do something special for you and your team. I'm not sure what. I'm telling you, if it's like bulk orders, though, probably going to be something awesome. Um, but it's really going to be awesome. It's going to be a great chance to hang out with me and Simon. Uh, learn from people from all over the world, uh, you know, just like me and Simon. Uh, but hopefully um, we're going to convince Maureen Anderson from Intix to fly down. Uh, I know Andrew Thomas from the TPC in Birmingham is supposed to be there. Derek Palmer from QQ. Uh, there's a lot of people that they're going to bring to Australia. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, I'm excited. Simon's excited. I hope you're excited. So go to Ticketing Professionals dot com dot au get your tickets when you get your receipt forward it to me and we'll hook you up okay let's get to the episode my guest today speaking of australia is my friend ali Scheuer, who is in charge of branding and marketing with the port adelaide power 
this was, um, I think, one of, to me, the most fun podcasts I've done, one of the most interesting, uh, one of the most compelling. Uh, Ali and I probably share a little bit of the Twitter market, marketing nerd. And in this episode, we talk about a lot of our favorite marketers and some of their ideas. Um, guys like Mark Ritson and Ryan Wallman, uh, Tom Goodwin, uh, Byron Sharp, uh, the list goes on, right? Lots of great marketers that we discuss either uh, in depth or in passing. And I, the reason I say that is because Ali and I, we share a common belief, which is that um, marketing sports and entertainment is really, really similar to marketing anything else, right? I remember when I started doing stuff in politics six or seven years ago that I took the position that marketing a political campaign was very similar to roll it, to a product launch, and that proved correct. Um, Ali talks about what it's like to market tickets and sports and entertainment versus other products. So it's a re that's really interesting. Uh, we talk about you know how his background, Ali comes from the ad agency side, has influenced the way he looks at selling sports. We talk about the um, challenges and opportunities of driving tickets. We spend a lot of time talking about memberships, uh, a, a lot of time about revenue generation, and we talk about how it is imperative for people to ensure that their organization looks at marketing as a profit center and not a cost center. Uh, the change in perception that is required to do that and how Ali has been elevating the role of marketing in his organization. We also talk about um, memberships in Australia and how for the AFL, which is the Australian Football League in this case, um, this isn't mentioned, but it's an important statistic to put out there, is that last year, AFL memberships reached a million people, which means that one in every 24 Australians is a member of some AFL club. So that's a huge number percentage-wise. And so we talk a lot about the membership model. We talk about growing the funnel. We talked about some of the challenges of growing the funnel, especially in the Adelaide market where the power is the number two team. Um, and what that looks like from a marketing standpoint, some of the uh, iron laws of marketing that this deals with. Um, then we talk about managing an iconic brand. We talk about the challenges of telling a story that pulls different eras of the organization together. Um, you know, that was pretty good. And a whole lot more. I mean, I have, I'm looking at them as I'm trying to introduce this episode and trying to figure out what to tell you to, to pay attention to. I have, uh, it looks like at least nine pages of notes here. Um, this was really, really great. Um, it was really awesome. We talked, the, the episode goes for about an hour, but we talked for another hour or more outside of that. Um, I feel like Ali is like one of those people who's cut from the same cloth. Um, really, really uh, smart, really curious, um, really great. So I hope you enjoy the conversation I had with Ali Scheuer from the Port Adelaide Power on the Business of Fun podcast. I want to take the time to welcome Ali Scheuer to the Business of Fun podcast. Ali, what is up, man? Hi, mate. How are you? First of all, um, 
That was brilliant. You got my last name perfect, and that doesn't happen often. I didn't even ask you how to say it no. either. That was great. I'm like no, smarter you than that. I say I am sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I usually, it's funny, whenever I get on the plane and I hand my ticket, they're always like, thanks, Oliver, should, uh, have a good flight. You know, they'll just skip the last part because for me it doesn't seem difficult, but I guess when you look at something for the first time, you can get caught on it pretty quickly. Well, it didn't seem that difficult to me, obviously, because I <laughs> nailed it. So that's great. Um, now, I I want to start out by asking you a question. I want to put you on the spot. Um, when I talk about marketing here, I say that marketing is basically everything, everything that an organization does, the whole, the whole lot, right? It goes from uh, how you really turn on the lights in the morning to how you greet your fans to um, what your ads look like to what you know how, what emphasis you put on your brand. Everything is marketing, right? And I have gotten so much slack and, and flack, and, <laughs> and I get hammered about it because people are like, "Oh, everything can't be marketing." I go, "You're wrong. You're an idiot. Move on." Um, what's your? How, tell me your philosophy of marketing. And it Ooh, better not be very... different than mine. My... No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, yeah. I was going to say, for, for me, marketing's all digital, right? That's the right answer, isn't it? That's exactly just, right. That's exactly right. Just, Good answer. Just riling everyone up from the start. You know, hopefully they haven't all switched off. Um, look, I think you, the, the reality is marketing is everything. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fundamentally quite a difficult conversation to probably address quite easily. Um, because, yeah, if you're from marketing, you get how it's everything. But if you're kind of from any other area of business, you, you know, particularly in my world, I've come from agencies, so you know, I used to think that marketing and advertising was just one area of business that you would hand over, you know, the the, the lines for somebody to colour in within, um, you know, coming to the club, and I've been here for nearly 18 months now, but one of my key jobs here has actually been to elevate the role of marketing and, and the education of what marketing is, and as simply as I can put it, marketing and brand is everything and it's your product, it's your price, it's how you want to get it into market and then it's promotion. You know, promotion is but one of the areas which probably people is all it is. Yeah. Well, we had an interesting conversation before this so I, I, and one of the things you brought up was the importance of strategy and making yeah. sure that you have the right strategy from the start. And I think we share a very common um, frustration, I think is the best way to put it, with <laughs> how reactive like businesses can be, especially when it comes to strategy, because they just, uh, and this is not exclusive to sports by any stretch of the imagination, but it mm. is, but it is, is that if you're not careful and you don't take consistent strategic action, you're running around with your hair on fire all the time. Uh, you yeah. shared an ad agency story with me and I was sharing some political examples with you. And it kind of the theme is, is like strategy first. And you just talked about needing to elevate the role of marketing. Can you tell mm. us a little bit about how you're doing that? Because change is like a big thing. You talked about change management before. Change, we, yeah. And how important that is. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, yeah, change is incredibly important. But as you would know better than anyone, it's often the hardest thing to do. Um, you know, as human beings, we're loss averse, so we hate change and we love the status quo. Um, so it can certainly make things uh, harder if it's not done properly. But yeah, what you've just touched on there about being strategy first um, is probably a fundamental that, that I've tried to take through my entire life, uh, even personally. Um, and then professionally, it's um, it's certainly the place to start. And that can feel a little counterintuitive in sport because at the end of the day, the product, um, so in, in our instance, Aussie Rules Football, the product is unpredictable. Um, so the un unpredictable 
nature of our sport that people consume tends to lend itself to being more reactive. Um, you know, and then when you bring in kind of other non-controllable variables that impact things like attendance, including weather, you know, you can and, and form, right? So form and how your team's playing, whether or not they won the weekend before, all of these things start to to feed a pretty typical understanding or acceptance that, well, of course you've got to be reactive because there's a whole bunch of stuff that you don't know about, even in a week's uh, lead time that can change. But I think um, I think the fundamental about strategy, which people tend to forget, is it's about setting your tram lines or train lines, depending on where you are, um, you know, about the destination that you're trying to get to and being really, really clear about what those objectives are you know, that, that are going to allow you to get to your destination. And probably for us as a club, most fundamentally, it's about really understanding what you're not going to do. Um, so, yes, you, it is a reactive industry. Yes, there are often times you have to be able to be agile and adapt to, you know, something that might pop up. Um, but the reality is that you, you need to have a benchmark, a place to start from. You need to know where your end goal is. But then every single time you do end up in a bit of a, a reactive need, it's at least within the, the remit of knowing how to get back on course. Um, so, and and, I, and I've, I learned that probably a long time ago in advertising because you're, you're often at the end of, of the, the marketing chain when it comes to executing ads and, and promotions. Um, but what often happened is, if the tactics are then put into market and they don't work, everybody wants to blame the tactics, but you very quickly learn in agency that it's not the tactics that are wrong, it was the strategy that was wrong. That's right. Well, you can only do so much with a bad strategy is the way I would put it. But you brought up something that is interesting and I don't want to let it pass because you talked about strategy as much as anything is about deciding what not to do. And yeah. this is something I talk about all the time, and I learned it from a guy called Alan Weiss, um, who is um, – you can find him at alanweiss.com. But he talks about the way that you build a great career and a great brand is by subtracting things. You know, And he he's used the example of the, the, the statue uh, of the David, right, and how like, you know, mm-hmm. it chipped away everything that wasn't the David, right? And so how do you do that? How do you – you know how how have you been able to be successful at teaching people that it, as much as what it, what you do do is strategy, it's also as important to give up on things because I know if I'm if it's similar here as it is in, in Australia, everybody feels like they have to be everywhere, they have to do everything yeah. all the time, and it's yeah. to the detriment of everybody. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. Like what you've what you've spoken about there, especially in the sports industry, is this idea of of needing to do everything, um, you know, for fear of being left behind, you know, for fear of, of not, you know, being able to take on something like first mover advantage. You know, in sports, we can talk about moving into esports, or for our club's perspective, playing an international game, um, which is, you know, a calendar event annually, um, or it could be the expansion of your core product into the women's side and having a women's football team or, and it's youth and, or it's, Going even further, and, and some Aussie rules clubs here in Australia have purchased netball teams to expand their, their ability to generate new revenue in, in new areas. But, look, I think if you go back to the start and trying to identify why it's important you don't try and do everything is is often the revenue results will tell you um, quite quickly. Um, you know, so if you, if you decide that you want to try other things but then at the expense of your core business um, – you know, that starts to go backwards. It's, it's a pretty 
clear indicator that trying to do too much with too little resource is, is much more damaging than trying to spend your time to get something optimized and then move on to the next thing. So from my perspective and, and from an education perspective, you know, bearing in mind I've come into the club quite late in the piece with a number of different areas that we pursue as a club, but it, it really is about trying to focus on optimizing our core business. You know, right now our job is to optimize our core business and get, you know, everybody associated to the Port Adelaide Football Club to Adelaide Oval if they're in South Australia and if they're not engaging with us in, in whatever manner they see fit. Um, because we've got a core challenge on our hands that we need to pursue. And the only way that we're going to be able to pursue that and be successful is being really uh, focused and simplified in what we are trying to do. Because to your point, everything else is just a distraction otherwise. And when you're distracted and, and, and you're say, taking your, your eye off the ball, then you, you start to find yourself in a little bit of trouble. So that's usually, uh, in, in my experience, and certainly in coming late in the piece, is more about coming in at a time where the writing is, is somewhat on the wall a little bit, um, that the, the pursuit of distraction is, is probably showing signs of, of concern. And then it's just about educating the business, getting them to understand that, hey, look, there's a problem over here in our core business. And unless we fix that, all these other areas that we're pursuing aren't going to be successful anyway. Yeah. Now, that's interesting what you said about being distracted from your core business because you talked about taking resources and applying them to all these different areas. The question I kind of, I want to ask you is when people are trying to do this, right? They're just taking like, let's say you only have a hundred dollars to spend and you're taking your core business probably needs all a hundred dollars, but then you take, yeah. you, you go, you can get by with 50 and then you go and I'm going to spread 50 over like 50 other things. Isn't that the part of the problem that you're trying to overcome? Because that's also it doesn't appreciate the importance of marketing to the organization and telling you know building the brand up and telling the story, or is it some other problem that you know creates this? How you know how would you define it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there's a number of <clears throat> excuse me, there's a number of probably different things that that result in in kind of splitting your hundred dollar bill like that. And and what you're talking about the value of marketing is. It's, it's pretty bang on to that. Um, if there isn't a real understanding of the core role of marketing and at the end of the day that it is to drive revenue and that with the resource that you have, you're predominantly looking to justify and determine the best return on that resource and investment that you possibly can. Um, but yeah, often it can, become, it can become a real internal battle and it can become a challenging battle. And, um, you know, in sports clubs, which – which will be of no surprise to anyone. You know, it's a, it, it is a very emotionally led business. Um, often it can be a very subjective led business. And, and again, that's why it really elevates the need to be strategically aligned at the beginning of a set period. Now, I'm not going to turn around and say that that needs to be every five years because I can't imagine that anybody's got a five-year strategy hanging around anymore. Um, but I'm also not going to turn around and say that you need to revisit your strategy every six months or a year. You know, you want to be able to track how that's traveling. But yeah, it, it really elevates the need of of going back to the start saying, what are we trying to achieve here? And if we're all on board with the trying to achieve that and then able to map out how if we nail this, then we can start seeing the benefit in pursuing these other areas. Then you can start to see that taking $50 away from this core business once optimised will actually better impact that, that other pursuit rather than, well, if you take $50 away here now and put it into another thing, both of those things are going to struggle dramatically because we're not equipped strategically or tactically to be able to take them on properly. 
I mean, I don't have to say that, you know, you're speaking my language, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it, it's really interesting to hear, you know, hear you talk about this stuff because I think sometimes, and this is one of the things, again, we share very, a very similar point of view on, I believe. And I think what you're dealing with now is like, you know, is the challenges of overcome, of defeating the status quo, right? Which yeah. is one thing um, that is very important to recognize. And then the second thing that you're also struggling with, because you brought up the idea that's emotional and subjective, is the fact that like sports, as much as people think that it is entirely different, this whole unique, special, special place. If you have a background in marketing like um, like I do, or you have an advertising background like you do, right? You realize it's like a football game is no different than selling a car or selling a uh, a movie ticket or anything else. <laughs> so how do you like, how do you overcome those things, right? How do you fight the status quo and teach people yeah. like, there's this there's a, these tried and true rules of marketing that you can follow <laughs> and yeah, they work. Yeah, it's, they work. <laughs> it, yeah, I feel like. Um, some days I should walk around with a sandwich board um, over my body that says that, yes, I'm a marketer, and yes, I'm a marketer in the new age, but the fundamentals of marketing have never changed, so just hear me out. Um, it's, um, yeah, look, in, in again, I, I joked at the start of this conversation about, you know, marketing being all things digital, um, you know, and that, that almost feels like that that's become the norm today, that, that digital is marketing, Um by itself, that that is not a channel. That in itself, it's a strategy, and particularly for sports clubs with with limitations on budget and resource, um, you know, you you kind of find yourself in a position that when you have certain fans on board, you know, they they've signed up to your newsletter, they're engaged with you on social media. That I don't need to spend anything to reach these people. Um, but one of the fundamentals about the outside non-sport marketing world that, that is as true in the sports world but probably harder to digest is this idea that there are many different types of consumers, um, you know, and that, that like any other industry, you have your heavy consumers and you have your light consumers. Now, the AFL um, and, and, the, and Aussie Rules, the sport we play, has, has been benchmarked and, and leveraged off a membership product, um, which – Particularly the eleven-game reserve seat membership, um, which for for people on there, that's kind of your your equivalent to the season ticket, um, you know. But it is a subscription product on the basis that you roll over year on year. You're a member of the club, which comes with it, you know, a sense of identity and belonging. Um, but there's there, there is a real focus, and for a long time, a real um, over-index on those heavy buyers. Um, but the reality is, is if you solely focus on those heavy buyers and, and you're not thinking about the behaviours and the attitudes and the motivations of those light buyers and investing in those light buyers, predominantly what happens is, is your, your pool of future membership dries up because you've got nobody to replace it with when they turn out. Let me interrupt you here because you brought yeah. up something, right? You're talking about over-indexing on heavy buyers. And this brings up an interesting thing that I don't think gets highlighted very often, but um, it's something that I read in Soccernomics. I don't know if you've read Soccernomics. Yeah. But they yeah. talked about how the life cycle of fans, right, and how you might be a heavy buyer today, but you're, the thing is, is like depending on what's happening in your life at the time, exactly. you yeah. become less of a, you know, less engaged, right? When I was a kid, yeah. I was probably way more engaged. Now I'm like super engaged in Tottenham Hotspur. Um, 
but you know the ebbs and flows. So you have to have something. You have to focus on the types of consumers and understand that, like, just getting somebody to the point of being a heavy buyer, that's not the end because you have to manage the downslope as well. Because oh, exactly, they could exactly be heavy right. buyers at two or three different points in their life cycle. So yeah. lifetime customer value. And, yeah, that's right. And 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 again, look, you know, if you if you look at the data. Um, you know, of, of that membership product and particularly the 11 game reserve seat, which is offered, well, it is, it's the most expensive ticket product that you can buy because it gives you access to a reserve seat as opposed to choosing your own when you get there. It's every home game. So I say 11 game because that's, we play 22 games a year. Uh, we have 22 rounds a year and we play 11 of them at home and 11 of them away. Um, so I'm, I'm particularly talking about that product there um, on the basis that, because there has been such a reliance and, and that generates as much yield um, for, for clubs, it, it's, it's a really hard pill to swallow that if I'm not focusing and, and investing my energies and my efforts onto this group, um, then they are going to churn out. But the data is telling us that the people that are buying this product are usually skewing older, um, so, which means that they're likely to have more disposable income likely to um, also have more free time uh, and given that fixture and and the time slot of games has a massive impact on attendance and consumption of the product but because because of the lifestyle they're in they're eventually going to age out especially in an aging population and then you go down to the other spectrum and this is where the real focus and again the elevation of what marketing is and the importance of marketing is that not everything needs to deliver an immediate ROI you know, and, and that's the power of brand is to engage these lighter users and even these non-users because we do need to create new supporters. We need to create the next generation of Port Adelaide supporters so that when when these these top heavy buyers churn out and phase out, there is enough people that have been connected and engaged and consumed the product for long enough that they then move into that. You know, And not everyone will. Like, don't get me wrong, not everyone's going to go, you know, one year I might attend one game I might attend to, well, then it makes sense that I'm, I'm eventually going to just keep going up that curve. Our job is as much to get people to maintain their level of consumption that they currently have as it is to get them to consume more. But being okay and being forgiving of light users is really, really important because I would, I would say, and I'd bank that a lot of clubs are probably the same, that there's almost this question mark around the value of a light user or a light consumer this idea that or if you're a heavy user and you're buying 11 game membership and you're turning up year on year, you bleed the club colors, right? You identify with that club. But if you're only coming to one game, why should I worry about you? You know, you're not a real supporter. Like there's that real challenge of the status quo there that, you know, you're like, oh, okay, well, if you're only going to come to one game, you're not important to me. I'm not saying that's the philosophy of the club by any means, but it is an education process that requires, again, understanding your strategy, and having a, a clear outline of what that strategy looks like over a couple of years, because if you ignore that now, then and the, your heavy users become a problem in time, and then you have nothing to refill that because you haven't had a strategy in place to get you there. I mean, you know, I, what, what do I say to that? <laughs> Except for now, but you did bring up something that is again. I mean, we're very, very similar, I think, in worldview on these things. Uh, you talked about not everything has to have show an immediate return on investment, and you yeah. talked about the power of branding and the need for long term brand development. Yeah, but what I what I connected it to was 
the things you were talking about as far as digital advertising and digital marketing, because we were making fun of it, but it brings up <laughs> a really serious question though, which is like, does the access to all this digital marketing and all these digital ad tools and the ability to, um, you know, test and measure things. So, uh, you know, sometimes precisely, sometimes not as precisely. Mm. I mean, uh, does it lead us to less effective ads in marketing? Um, because we, we end up tracking or be, uh, having our feedback, give us the, the wrong feedback from the wrong things at the wrong time. Yeah. You, you, you bring up a, a, it's a poignant conversation for the industry in general. Um, and I just want to say, by the way, like I might be making fun of, of digital advertising uh, and digital marketing, but not at the expense of how good it is. Uh, you know, we, we do a lot of digital advertising and we focus a lot on, on we using digital. Because we care. <laughs> we care. Because we care. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it is an incredibly, um, but like every channel, it has its role. And, and I guess part of, part of that role and going back to the fundamentals of marketing and again, being really strategic and understanding of what am I trying to achieve? Who do I need to target to achieve that? And ultimately then how am I going to reach them? Everything has a role. Um, but, but what you've just talked on there is predominantly why status quo, new age status quo is becoming hard. It's because it is immediately justifiable. You know, if I go and pop a thousand dollars into a ticketing ad, I can within days show the return on that investment. And, and when you work for an establishment, um, which is common across many, many different sports clubs and, again, across many, many different brands in general, you know, um, it's very, very difficult to want to invest in anything that doesn't showcase or justify an immediate return um, because there is such a need for revenue now. Um, and, look, I come from advertising. I understand that that there's still probably a lot of people out there that think that advertisers and people that do advertising live in la-la land, you know, um, that, you know, my old business partner used to joke about when he was in the agency times of the 80s and 90s and you know, they got to given a To be fair, some people do live in la-la land, so it's totally fine. Yeah, yeah, no, don't get me wrong. Oh, my goodness, there are plenty, especially the, you know, there's a lot of that how far up do you want to go uh, on the needs ladder and the benefits ladder before you jump off and literally just in the clouds? Um, so, you know, there, there are some stuff that you look at as a marketer and advertiser and you just go, oh, dear. Um, but I think because that that need to justify marketing spend, um, particularly because I think still to this day, especially if you haven't done a good enough job of educating the board or educating the C-suite, um, that marketing is a cost. It's not an investment. Um, and and that, that framing will always be a problem, especially when, you know, for a club, you've got huge amounts of different priorities, huge amounts of different objectives that aren't just game ticket sales related or membership related, um, that there's only a finite amount of resource. And, you know, I've spent a, I have spent a fair amount of my time at the club elevating the role of marketing, as I mentioned, but with that, the need to invest in advertising um, and that challenge has been, again, met with, will show me the return, justify the return. But it's funny because one, one of the most prominent examples that I ever remember um, about the value of investing in brand and building a brand that you can't showcase immediate ROI is, is a case study, or, or I can't remember where I came across it, but it was about Huggies. You guys have Huggies, the nappies in or Pampers? Yeah, we have those. Yeah, Huggies and Pampers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so a year and a half ago, I became a dad for the first time, and and it was funny because I came around, I came across this piece, and I, I, you have to forgive me, and I'm sorry to the author who wrote it because I don't remember. It might have been through some of Mark Ritson's work or Byron Sharp's, I'm not sure, but um, there was it was positioned this idea that if you only focused on hitting up people with a message when they needed the product, well, then that's all well and good. But if I'm an individual and I'm walking into a grocery store and I'm a new dad and I'm sitting there looking at 30 different brands of nappies and I'm going, I have no idea which one to choose. And don't get me wrong, mental availability is a huge, huge benefit for choice, right? I come from the world of behavioral economics and helping people make decisions quicker and with uh, less consideration and thought is, you know, we're, we're inherently lazy individuals. We don't like using energy. So we look for shortcuts. And that's why branding and sponsorship is so powerful. But um, if I'm sitting in that aisle and I've never heard of Huggies before, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to make my way through that absolute choice paralysis of which brand of nappies do I choose, having no idea. But if I've been served up ads and I've been served up brand messaging and I've built an affiliation with the brand Huggies, I walk into that supermarket having been a dad. I need to buy nappies and I reach out and I take, uh, I take huggies. And that's, that's, that's an immediate ROI. You know, you can justify the spend then and there, but it's the years of branding and building structures in my memory to associate huggies with a reliant and, and um, I guess, good choice for nappies. You know, it's a safe bet for me because I know it. It looks familiar. So investing in brand is massive um, and – you know, whether it be through differentiating your brand or just being distinctive, you know, there, there's pools of thoughts and, and I recently saw some work done around the Effies Awards about the, the role of both. And as a club, we need to be distinctively Port Adelaide in market, but we also really need to define why we're different because if we're not different and we're not distinctive in market, particularly given that we are the smallest shared club, so we share the Adelaide sports market and the Aussie rules market with another club, the Adelaide Crows, um, who were in the AFL for seven years longer than us. Um, so they are a much bigger club by way of support. Um, inferior but, for this conversation. Inferior for this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Inferior. Um, but, but, you know, if, if you're not investing in, in, in building relationships and building connections and consistent connections with people, then when it does come to the time of purchase, you're making it a lot harder for them to make that purchase, which often means that they won't. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so, the, so the decision is if it's confused, the answer is no. No. Yeah. Right. If you're not creating the path of least resistance, it doesn't matter what industry you're from. If the path of least resistance to the behavior that I want somebody to do um, is not there, then they're not going to do it. Right. Yeah. I, I tell people all the time if I do a proposal, a lot of times there'll be three options in the proposal, right? And it'll be because, number one, I've made it seem like it's easier for people to work with me. Because if I just give you one, it's yes or no, and the answer is usually yeah, be yeah. no. So then if it, instead it becomes, well, okay, so how can I work with Dave? So then already I've overcome a mental hurdle. And so then yeah. it becomes, well, how will I work with Dave, right? And yeah. it, it, it's just a mental trick, right, which is like the mental availability and all of this stuff. I, exactly. I talk about the neuromarketing all the time. I was like, when well, there's all these cues that you don't know the things you're doing are causing people to react to because – 
some of them, people are going to tell you they like it when you do them, like discounts. Yeah. And yeah, discounts yeah, yeah. in their mind, it's like if I give you a discount, then I'm a discount brand and you're always going to wait That's for me it. to drop my price. That's exactly right. But they tell That's you exactly they right. love it and you can't do it. You, you, you just yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who doesn't love a discount? But but at what cost? You know, and again, um, you know, it's particularly in the ticketing space, um, you know, to drive attendance, particularly for those lower appealing games, um, yeah, the, the go-to is to drop ticket prices, but but predominantly that's that's a short-term return at a potentially long-term cost. Well, that's um, that goes back to the thing I, which I wanted to ask you about, which is that number one, we both can agree, I believe, and I won't put words in your mouth. I'll let you put them in there <laughs> for you. This is that marketing. If you're allowing marketing to become a cost center, you've lost the battle of marketing. So the, the, Undoubtedly. The, so the, the real truth is, and then, so now we both say this, is marketing has to be a profit center for the organization. If it's not, it's a failure. That's, yep. that's as good that's as, as straight ahead as I can say it for them. If there um, are any marketers out there that are thinking that their job is not to make money, that might help them sleep at night, but the reality is it's not going to make them successful. Our no. job is to make money. Yeah, I don't know if I'm a very good advertiser, right? I know that I am a great marketer, though, because I know how to make money. Um, but I will never win any awards. I mean, this is the truth, right? I'm not probably like going to win any awards. But the second part of that, right, which is marketing, if it's a profit center, one of the challenges, because I know you and I come out of a similar uh, background of like, like looking to some of the same resources and talking to a lot of the same people, is that there's this challenge of, and well, I'll use just shorthand CMOs, right? Um, they have shorter and shorter or less job security than ever before. Um, and it's a struggle for a lot of people. And I think it points back to that part of the thing, which is like the CMOs and people in marketing don't have enough emphasis on the bottom line. And they just yeah. don't spend enough time emphasizing that, like, hey, we have to do some of these things that are not going to get a direct ROI. Yeah, This thing over here, though, is going to show a return on investment together they're going we're going to make money off of this thing but we need yeah. to do these things because the payoff's not going to come until you have a baby and you need to go to the store right and that's a great yeah. example because the thing is, yeah. is like i know huggies right if i had to go buy my son's nine so i don't need to buy huggies anymore but i know that like i would that would be my brand i would buy right and that's yeah. you know that's the truth um yeah. it, it's like a really important thing so then when you're talking about elevating the role of marketing, um, it's really, to me, it's really interesting because, you, you know, you highlighted distinction and differentiation. You've highlighted really, really a lot of things. But but also I understand, like, because you've told us about this, about how far down the chain of respect, I guess, marketing was in the organization. How far along, How you know, how much have you changed the perception of marketing in the organization? Yeah, look, it's um, it's a, it's, a, it's a brave question, and uh, and I won't I won't dance around. No, nah, I'm um, half a world away. I, it's I, not brave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the answer is brave. Not, you know, yeah. Well, okay. And 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 in being as brave in my response, the reality is, is, I think I've done a wonderful job of elevating the role of being strategically focused to the club, and then the, the ability to be strategically focused is to be research led right and to be insights and data led and and what i mean by that is you know my biggest job here at the club is to educate um which goes back into that kind of change transformation and change management piece because um 
I've got to be able to educate people about A, how marketing fits everything and the role it has to fit everything, but B, you know, to your point about trying to showcase, you know, the, the long-term return versus the short-term return and the long-term focus versus the short-term focus. But I can only do that by being research and insights-led. So I've put a huge amount of emphasis in my, in my first six months at the club, I put a huge amount of emphasis on market research. Um, and, and doing that so that I'm not walking into conversations with subjectivity. And that's probably one of the key areas that anybody working in sport um, would be really well aware of is, is the role of subjectivity in decision-making, um, particularly given that, you get, like in the charity space, you get a lot of well-intentioned, um, passionate people that are connected to the brand because they've loved it previously um, but I was always taught from a very early on part of my career that once you start working for a brand, you're no longer that 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 audience. Um, so being research led and being um, insights led to build a strategy has been absolutely pivotal. Now that part's been wonderful. I've really elevated that. I've probably got the club. Uh, we've you know we've elevated this idea that the marketing department isn't a colouring in department. You know, and, and being more considered in, all right, well, what is the problem that we're trying to achieve here for every single brief, every single task? Now, you know, we don't just look after casual ticketing. I mentioned membership, but we also have hospitality. We also have merchandise, have events. You know, then we have our China game. Uh, we have corporate partnerships and, and sponsors and activating sponsors' brands. Uh, you know, we have fundraising through bequest and lottery and look, the, the list goes on and on. Um, but done a great job of elevating the need to be insights and data-led to remove subjectivity from conversation, but I've still a long way to go to justify the investment in promotion, which, again, is challenging the status quo that fill the funnel, you've got to go wider, you've got to broaden the appeal of the brand. Uh, and when I say broaden the appeal of the brand, I'm not saying be everything to everyone. Um, but we need to be more visible in market. We suffer dramatically from being the, the smaller share club, um, which means that we have to invest more than the club across the road. Um, otherwise, we're, you know, we're just not going to generate the new level of supporters that we need to fill our funnels in the future. And, and it's interesting, you know, because I was, I was asking the question about elevating the role of marketing because I know there's, you know, one of the challenges in the way we connected was about uh, selling tickets and driving attendance. Um, yeah. And, you know, so you mentioned fill the funnel and I'm going to ask you about that. But then the other thing is about managing because of the, you know, how this is what next year is the 150th anniversary of the football club. That's right. And, yeah. these are, you know, these are important things because that's to me an opportunity to reinvigorate everything you've done right because it's a huge milestone mm. birthday right uh you know so you're like oh yeah 150th anniversary we can do a lot with that uh, but i'm kind of want to step back though and go back to this filling the funnel thing because it means a little bit different to every organization and every club of and i'm kind of i'm interested on your how you know your approach to it because like i've had a really interesting conversation with uh jacob lausen from fc copenhagen and he talked mm -hmm. about how, you know, the same thing. And I find it fascinating because I think, as I mentioned before we started recording, in the States, too much of the filling the funnel is driven by phone calls. And I don't find mm -hmm. that effective uh, in, in all cases. So I'm kinda, I, 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 I kind of want to get a better feel for how you, 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 your description of filling the funnel and what you would yeah. like to go through. 
Yeah, um, it's it, it can be a very complex answer, so I'll try and answer it as simply as possible. But uh, I've, I've touched on membership um, and, you know, in, in working with some global academics when we did the research um, and Professor Heath Donald, I have to pay a nod to him. Um, yeah, he, he's been phenomenal and, and, and a wonderful mentor for me since actually before joining the football club. I, I became involved uh, with, with Heath just before I joined the club as I kind of set out to learn as much academically about sports marketing and sports consumer behaviour as possible. And Heath has been phenomenal in, in helping me set the trajectory um, for the club and, you know, everything that I talk about from light buyers through to heavy buyers and fan development is predominantly through through the opportunity to work with him. Um, but but Heath, Heath has a really simple model for fan development. And when I talk about filling the funnel, it is, it is exactly that. It's, it's finding new supporters. Um, so, you know, and it goes back to the brand and what we want to stand for as a brand and, and again, how much sports consumption is changing. There'll be a lot of people out there listening, particularly those, uh, which is where I came across your work for, for MLB and, and the, the attendance issue that they're having along there is it's, it's happening everywhere. You know, um, TV viewership and, and attendance is decreasing. Sports consumption is changing dramatically, particularly as tech and digital evolve. But the membership probably at the end of that funnel, um, you know, especially the 11-game reserve seat membership. And we, we, we kind of look at fan development across three core areas. You enter the experience of, of attending a sports game usually around the, the fun side of things, right? So, um, you know, it's it's providing a game day experience that, that allows people reason to come to a game or choose to come to a game over any other entertainment experience because that's what we're competing with. You know, we are at the end of the day, we are an entertainment brand, and and we're and we are competing in the entertainment industry, and we are asking people to give up their time that they would otherwise use other options to fill their entertainment time with, and their disposable or, or spare income. Um, so the entry to the funnel is to get people to come to a Port Adelaide game because it's an incredibly fun and social experience. Um, you know, and there's their motive. That's their motivation. You know, you're usually coming to a football game because you've been invited by someone or you're going with a group of friends, and I've managed to put an ad in front of you enough times more than once for you to go, okay, I'll consider that, and then hopefully again along the consumer journey, I'm ready to buy that. You know, So the proposition is very, very different somebody entering the idea of choosing a football game to, to, to use their time versus somebody that's a five-year-plus member who bleeds the colours of the club and will never miss a game. So that filling the funnel is, is absolutely pivotal that we get our, our fun and social strategies right because – these people are, they're not engaged with the product. They're not in love with the brand. They probably have very little understanding of the brand. Um, you know, in South Australia, which is typically a very AFL Aussie rules focused market, they're aware of what Aussie rules are, but they don't have an intent to, to go there. Um, it really needs to start down there. And you get them on there. And if you, if you get them in the fun space and they're having the experience and they've had an experience that they really enjoyed, you've got a good chance of getting them back, right? which then goes back to all this other stuff that you'll see across the industry time and time again is the game day experience is absolutely pivotal for whether or not people are going to come back. And that can be through absolutely everything, through the transport to getting there, the cost to getting there, food and beverage that's on offer there, the entertainment, even the behaviour of the crowd, right? All of that feeds into whether or not I'm coming back. You get them there, you get them having a good time, they realise that the entertainment proposition is something that they want to absorb more of 
then they start falling into this territory that we've themed centrality. So they start organising their lives around it. They're becoming a bit more connected, right? And and their behaviour suddenly becomes a little bit more involved too. So, you know, they might become a fan on Facebook and follow the club on Facebook. They might decide to sign up to the newsletter and get hit up once a week by a newsletter about what's happening. It's starting to show a little bit more interest, but they want to absorb more of the product, so they start organising their lives around it. So that you're in that centrality phase, right, where where you're happy to start centralising your life around it. The next and final phase, which is the third one, is identity. Now, that's nirvana for any brand, right? And this goes back to what we were talking about, you know, is sports really that unique compared to other, other industries? Most people probably have an assumption that the typical sports fan is the person that fits into this territory. You know, the, the, the bloke or woman that will paint their face, they'll turn up to every single game, rain, hail or shine, they have every piece of merch, um, but the reality is, is that isn't, you know, the, the, the only sports fan. As, as you can see just by those three key areas, there are many different types of fans, which then, again, from a sports consumption perspective, you're going, you're at the fun side of it, you're going to one or two games maybe a year if we're lucky, to the, to the identity spectrum where you're not missing a game. So same, and it's the same with TV consumption. You know, you consume more TV as you go further along that fan space. So, so our job... And again, I'm, I'll, I'll try not to dive too much into the science of it because I'm, I'm mindful of not overloading everyone with too much information. But I've harped on a little bit about being the, the second team in, in the Adelaide market, right? I'm going to call on Byron Sharp's work here of Double Jeopardy Law. Um, and for, for anybody that's, that's unaware of what Double Jeopardy Law is, and, it's, and it has been proven across every single industry that I can think of and, and category, and it's this idea that if you, if you are – if you have smaller market share, not only do you have slightly less loyalty, you you attract less new fans or new purchases or new consumers. So the research we did last year, and again, this has helped me elevate the role of marketing and the role of strategy in the club, is that the first time since, since I, I'm aware of, we were able to actually identify the exact market share breakdown, you know, for for our club versus the Adelaide Crows and then other AFL clubs because there are people obviously that live in Adelaide that don't support either of these South Australian teams. And what we found is that from a market share perspective, the Adelaide Crows are pretty much twice our, our share. Um, so for which then, for people who don't understand because you didn't want to get too technical, that yeah. is how the leader in most markets performs is they're going to have be about twice the size of the second place brand. Yeah. That is like yeah. a universal rule of marketing when we talk yeah. about so this. And if you want to quantify it, what I'm saying is the Adelaide Crows in South Australia have about, I think it's quantifiably about 550,000 supporters um, and we have about 260,000 supporters. So it works out to be about 19% to 40% of market share because then well, – Let um, me ask you one more question to see how, yeah. how this holds up. So if you have 50 – they have – the Crows have 550,000. You yeah. have 260,000. The rest of the support in, in southern Australia around, around Adelaide probably has somewhere between, what, 100 and 150,000? Yeah, so it's then – yeah, that's exactly right. So it – it's um it's then broken up across other non SA teams and and again what should be of no surprise is the teams the non South Australian teams that have the highest amount of support in South Australia are again the bigger brands in those other markets yep. so you look at like Collingwood Magpies or the Richmond Tigers um, 
So it's of no surprise that the bigger market share brands um, have more supporters. Um, and what that means is in South Australia, for every new four Aussie rules fans created, given the current breakdown of market share, two of them will support the Adelaide Crows, one of them will support us, and one of them will support a non-South Australian team, right? So if all things remained equal and nothing changed, it predominantly means that the Adelaide Crows are going to grow at twice our speed, at, you know, and, and that's a problem for us because because ultimately what that means is we have lesser attendance than them, we have lesser members than them, um, you know, and the ability to attract more is harder because we don't have market share advantage. And that impacts things like commercial proposition and why sponsorships sponsors would want to choose you over them or another team in another state. Um, so so it's, what this does is it highlights how important it is for us as a club to be moving, and I'm not saying ignoring the, the heavy buyers because they're obviously important. They, they hang up 60% of our attendance. They prop up 60% of our attendance and they prop up 30 40% of our core consumer revenue. So they're absolutely pivotal for the financial security of this club. But they can't be at the expense of attracting new supporters. And attracting new supporters in this day and age is a very different proposition to what it might have been once upon a time. And it needs to start probably down at the entertainment fun side of things. Get people engaged. Get people wanting to come to a Port Adelaide game because it's the best form of entertainment uh, in South Australia. Yeah, it's, it, it, it seems so simple, but I think sometimes it gets lost, right? It, it, it does, yeah. Yeah, and and I, you know, you, you, you basically, this whole podcast has been you answering like one question I had, which was like, how does having such a diverse background help you sell and market tickets? We don't need, we're never going to need to touch that <laughs> because this is a whole <laughs> testament. That's probably a testament to any job you want from here on out. But <laughs> well, the, I do want to ask you about managing the iconic brand because yeah. I, I think we both, um, I'll speak for myself here. I do have a love of branding and like the power of a great brand, right? And I know that um, in the world of tickets that we in sport and, and entertainment marketing, uh, I have been fortunate enough to build a somewhat recognizable brand. Um, and you, you know, you've had the chance to work on like some really, really great campaigns for some really recognizable mm. brands. Um, mm. How is managing Port Adelaide? at the point where they're heading into the your 150th birthday. You know, what is that like? And, like, what opportunities does it create for you and what challenges does it generate for you as well? Yeah, look, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful question and it's, a, it's an area that, that we've taken seriously for, for quite some time now. And, and you know, it, it is no small feat as a football club to celebrate our 150th anniversary and, um, and bearing in mind the timing of this podcast, and I don't want to, again, overload people with information, but we have a very complicated story as a football club. Um, but as a brand, and to give some people context, the AFL is a national competition. It evolved out of the VFL, which was the Victorian Football League, um, which was one of the states here in Australia. That was kind of the – it became – the, the pin-up of state competition and, and you had a lot of players going to play in Victoria instead of staying in South Australia to play or stay in Western Australia. And, and predominantly that that Victorian competition became more national by footprint because they had interstate teams playing in, in that VFL. So that made sense for that to become AFL. But the point I'm trying to make is um, we we are the, the Port Adelaide Football Club. In the AFL, we're referred to as the power 
Um, so, you know, we've got a, a fist with lightning. That's our, our logo. That's our moniker. Um, but the reality is, is before we joined the AFL, we were the Port Adelaide Magpies. And we still, our reserves who play in the State League are the Port Adelaide Magpies. But our first team who play in the national competition, which is obviously where all the revenue and focus is, um, um, given the you know that's that's the highest attended sport in Australia. Aussie rules is the most popular sport in Australia, um, and we're one of eighteen teams in that. But we operate as the power, and we're the power in the AFL because the Collingwood Magpies were already in the AFL for seven years before we joined, um, and they came from the VFL. They were the Collingwood Magpies in the VFL. So we could never exist in the AFL as the Magpies, um, which is why a new identity was created. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've worked to hold on to this idea that, you know, we were the Port Adelaide Football Club back then, we're the Port Adelaide Football Club now, and we'll always be the Port Adelaide Football Club. We've just kind of changed um, monikers, I guess, or mascots along the way or whatever, you know, uh, however you want to. That has created a huge problem for us um, because what ultimately has happened is we have two very different, distinct, emotionally attached to brands in market. So we have the Magpies in the state league. We've got the power in the in the, the national league. Um, and that's come about because of a very complicated story. Um, and the reality is we were forced to be separated in two into two different clubs for a time being when we joined the AFL. Uh, I won't go into that. And from about 1997 to 2010, the Port Adelaide Magpies and the Port Adelaide Power were two different entities. They were forced to be two different entities. But they came back and we merged the club back together to be one in 2012. Um, and We Are Port Adelaide was born to, to elevate this idea that the Magpies and the Power have always been the Port Adelaide Football Club, always the one club. Um, and now, as we lead into the 150th anniversary, we're actually taking that final step um, for, for our anniversary year to, to take to market what one Port Adelaide Football Club looks like visually. So I spent the last 18 months working on the, the development of our new identity, um, which, which has brought a huge amount of challenge. Um, you know, I've already spoken a lot about subjectivity and the need to be market-oriented and, and the ability to not take ownership of being the audience but be the voice of the audience. Um, but that's been a really fascinating process for me in terms of getting the, the brand strategy but also the, the, the asset right, our new logo right, um, when you're bringing two hugely emotionally attached to identities that in their own rights have their own assets, their own distinctive assets. You know, I worked with Ehrenberg Bass Institute. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of them over there, but they're probably the, the global brand market research leader. Um, so I worked with them in defining our, our, our iconic and distinctive assets um, so that we're in a position to, to introducing our 150th anniversary logo that was built out of the equity of two very different logos. Um, so that's been a massive challenge aesthetically. But then, yeah, internally, it's, it's, it's a really, really tough one to navigate because the Port Adelaide Football Club is renowned as the most successful football club in Australia. Um, and that, that will... For Australian listeners, that will really wind them up um, because <laughs> the reason why I say that is we, we if you count all our premierships, we have 37 premierships, um, but 36 of those were won in the state league. We've only actually won one in the national competition, and that was in 2004. Um, so in, in the AFL, we're not the most successful club, but 
but on the basis that all clubs count all premierships, you know, we've won the most amount of premierships. And you know, even back in you know, the early 1900s, you know, we, we played against the champions of Australia and we won those, you know, and played in the champions of Australia four times. So, again, a really, really proud, um, successful football club. But it, it, it proves an interesting challenge because you've got, you've got a whole generation of supporters who have been built um, and associated our brand with success and unre- unrelenting pursuit of that and being bold and brave in the pursuit of that, more or less just sticking up to anyone that wants to get in our way. You know, we are, we, we are a club that was born out of the community. You know, we are the only non-Victorian team in the AFL that hasn't been, that isn't a composite team. We haven't been put together or relocated out of, out of Victoria. We are the only club in the AFL that has come from community, from, from grassroots through to top league, um, so you bring a lot of legacy and history, and that's why the 150th anniversary is really important. But, yeah, we, we still hang on to these brand pillars of, of this unrelenting pursuit of success that haven't delivered that for a very long time. And, and funnily enough, um, you know, we've, we've actually in the last 11 years played finals three times. So from a brand perspective, you, you, you're really playing with this tough territory where, you know this the louder generation, and again, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna call that out that that the minority can often have the louder voice. Um, so you know, again, you've got to be careful as a brand when navigating such a tough area for us not to fall on the loudest voice. You've got to be mindful that 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 we are a club that has 260,000 supporters, and not just not all of them have been around for the whole time, and not all of them connected because they were part of the Port Adelaide Magpies. You know, they could have come into the club any time in the last 20 years and be associated to the power side of the club, which hasn't been successful. It's been brave and it's been bold and innovative and pursuing things like China. But it's a really, if I'm to be completely honest, it's a very schizophrenic brand. Um, and it's a brand that, that, that probably feels a little bit lost. And so trying to bring back a defining idea of who we are so that, Everything that we do, how we how we talk, what we say, what we do, what we don't do, you know, all of that just continues to elevate the idea of who the Port Adelaide Football Club brand is. My dream is have three key words written down in my office, and that I should be able to, in time, walk out into the market and ask anyone to describe the Port Adelaide Football Club in three words. And if I've done my job, they would say the three words that I've got written in my office. Are you going to tell us what they are? Um, no, <laughs> because, 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 do you know why? Because I can't, because I can't just yet. Um, you know, like we're still navigating that and this is, this is the challenge. This is the challenge of, you know, and, and, and to be quite bold in, in the suggestion, it's, it's why subjectivity and the echo chamber of sports clubs can be really difficult to navigate. Um, you know, because I think everybody's clear of what we want to be but I don't know if, if we're so clear in, ha- in executing off of that. In fact, I'm, I'm confident that we're not. Um, and, again, that comes back to the role of strategy. It comes back to the role of focus and being clear on what your objectives are. It comes back to being really defined and aligned from, from, from the trainers out in the football field to the players to the coaches to the admin, you know, to the, to the um, volunteers. We have a lot of wonderful volunteers that associate their time with this club all the way up to the board, you know, you, you need to have all of these people completely aligned on, on what it is that you are as a football club. Um, and we're probably not quite there yet. 
but I have faith that you're going to get there. And <laughs> just to finish this off, it's like, it was funny that you said there was three words because I know you probably watched um, the Mark Ritson video, which people can Google about Apple and how Apple had come up with three words and everything fit in those three words. And then I went through the process yeah. this week and I did the same thing, which I, you probably saw, but I wanted people, when they think of me, I want them to think about uh, humanity creativity and opportunity and that's those are like the three that i try to try to do so they I, so i was just curious and i didn't mean to put you on the spot but um, yeah yeah no but no. i also did mean to put you on the spot because i mean come on i had to bust your chops somehow so. yeah so it's, it's, it's funny because you know there, there will be people that will, will have grown up with this club being so successful and and so you know bold and unrelenting in the pursuit of that success and, and winning, all of those things. You know, but the reality is that's not our world now. We, we exist in a competition that, like the NFL, you know, it's set up with things like the draft so that, the, that there isn't a team that always wins. You know, it, is, it is such a levelled competition to the point where, where this year alone, even last year, it is all so close that six weeks out, you still don't know who's going to be playing finals. Um, it is it is set up. Our competition is set up to give every club a chance. You know, if you finish last in the year before, then you get first pick in the draft. Um, so when you're in an environment that isn't the same as what it used to be from a sports competition perspective, it becomes very difficult to hang on some of those values that might not be deliverable. And then those standards and the expectations that our people have, and they put that on you. When you start to fail in delivering in those, um, you're in trouble. And I my my number. I guess my number one job from a brand perspective, and again, this is this might be foreign to a lot of people working in sports, but it goes back to the top of the conversation where we talked about the unpredictable nature of sports. As a brand, we cannot rely on a win-loss ratio. And our opportunity is to find things and be a brand that gives people plenty of reason to connect to outside of what's happening on that football field. I, I think that is a good place to... to to stop it because I, that's like if there's one theme that goes throughout everything I do, it's like you can't run a business based on whether or not you're winning or losing. Um, no, you cannot. <laughs> how can I? How can people find you on the internet? Yeah, um, I uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, so Ollie Shoyer, O L I S H A W Y E R, um, managed to to keep my handle um, and LinkedIn. Um, I've actually recently, and, and again, some people might know this working in sport, even though we use. Facebook and Instagram a huge amount from an execution perspective. Um, I actually closed down my accounts um, to, to give myself a bit of space um, from, I guess, yeah, it's, it's a tough world. You know, you, you, you're, you're constantly exposed working in sports and your work is constantly on show. So you can get a lot of negative feedback very quickly at times and, and, and probably more just kind of to remove the distraction from life of wasting my time pursuing news feeds that I never pay attention to. So, yeah, just... Twitter and LinkedIn is where I'm at these days. Yeah, that's this is what I tell people. I go, if you try to find me on Facebook, then you obviously don't know me because you're going to find me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll definitely find me on Twitter. Hey, I oh, really appreciate great. you doing this, man. Thank you, mate. I've, it's been a ball. Um, yeah, sorry for the verbal diarrhea at parts, but hopefully there's something for everyone to take away. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. What did you think of my conversation with Ollie? I thought it was great. Let me know what you think by sending me an email. It's my name, Dave, at DaveWakeman.com. As always, you can find me on my website. That's www.DaveWakeman.DaveWakeman.com. Uh, once again, that's www.DaveWakeman.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, right? 
just search for me, Dave Wakeman. You can also follow me on Twitter, where I'm at David Wakeman. As I have mentioned, I think, on this is episode 77, for 77 episodes now, or so, 75, whatever. If you know the person who has the at Dave Wakeman Twitter handle, get it for me. I really need that thing, and I don't think the guy's tweeted since 2014, so he doesn't need it. Give it to me. It would be on brand for me. As always, I want to thank you for listening to The Business of Fun. If you like what I'm doing, I'd love it if you'd share an episode with a colleague of yours, a friend, someone you think would gain from the conversations that I'm having here with people like Ollie. If you are inclined and you have shared it, maybe you want to become a subscriber. It helps, right? It helps elevate the uh, listeners. It helps make other people find the podcast. And it helps make sure I continue to deliver these really interesting conversations. Um, If you are a subscriber, then maybe you'll leave a review. Uh, We're on most of the major podcast platforms now. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, all of that stuff. Um, You know, so... Leave a review. It's awesome. All right. I want to thank my friends at Booking Protect. You know what I, you know what I'm telling you to do. They are the global leaders, the best in the world at delivering refund protection. They have the most comprehensive refund protection product. They have the greatest technological solution to deliver customer service to your customers in a way that doesn't not, not just doesn't detract from your brand it enhances your brand uh, over and over and over again stories and feedback come back that working with booking protect is transformative for the way that organizations are able to handle their refunds uh, cancellations and um, issues where their customers might not be able to come to a show uh, it's easy to find out how to work with them. You go to www.bookingprotect.com or you send me an email and I'll hook you up with whoever you need to talk to. It's uh, great for adding customization to the customer's buying path. It is great to give people peace of mind, especially for uh, shows that are being put on sale months and years in advance. Uh, you know, think about some of these high profile failures of shows, book and protect handles, all of these things, right? It helps give people security. And most importantly, it helps you and your organization create a new stream of revenue, right? Multiple streams of revenue is a secret to success for any organization. Uh, so visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. And you didn't think you're going to get off this easy, did you? Remember, I'm going to Australia. And Simon Mab, CEO of Booking Protect, is coming with me. Um, you're going to get tired of hearing this message because we're not going to let it rest. Because we want you to come see us at the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Sydney, Australia on the 14th and 15th of November. Uh, spoiler alert, Joe Michelle, who is one of the two ladies who's organizing the event, putting it on, and like dedicating it, feels like her whole life to making this conference a success. It's her birthday on the 14th. So we will be doing uh, toasting her and cheering her on. Um, this is going to be a great, a great conference in Sydney. I've never been to Sydney. Simon's never been to Sydney. Uh, Angela and Joe are doing a fantastic job of bringing people in from around the world to talk and bring their ideas to Australia. So you're going to see me and Simon, of course. Uh, you're going to see Derek Palmer, uh, who's from QQ. Uh, you're going to see, uh, I believe, Andrew Thomas from the UK is coming. Uh, there's people from all over. Hopefully, every continent will be represented. It's going to be great. You can get your tickets. They're on sale now. Visit 
the website at www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. Once again, that's www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au and get your tickets today. As an added bonus, this is what I'm going to do. If you buy your tickets today, by August 1st, right? I'm going to put a limit on this and then I'll come up with some something else uh, as a, a prize. If you buy your tickets before August 1st and you send me your receipt, I will do a webinar or a coaching call with your team about revenue generation, marketing, sales, branding, strategy, something about how you generate revenue for your organization. That offer is good until August 1st. As many people as can take me up on it, get in and do it, right? So visit www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. Buy your tickets. Send me the receipt at davidavewakeman.com by August 1st. And we'll set up a coaching call or a webinar or uh, some sort of group gathering for you and your team to talk about some aspect of revenue. All right? That's an offer you shouldn't be able to refuse. So www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. Get your tickets. Come see me in Australia. I'm going to be giving the opening keynote talking about change, how to manage change, how to use change to your advantage, and how to grow your organization. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be great. Um, I'm so excited. Uh, I talk to Simon all the time about it. He's so excited. Uh, We're going to do just a bunch of stuff to promote the the conference and share our ideas and we couldn't be more excited so make sure you get your tickets and get them early www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au and i've gone on long enough so one more thing thank you for listening again uh until next time take it easy